Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Happy New Year. Um, we are starting our new series this morning. We're going to be in Philippians. If you've got your Bibles, I'll grab those. But listen, it's worth acknowledging that we are filming for the first time. I'm coming to you from our new building, which is really exciting. Please excuse the slightly warm hoodie. It's a little bit chilly in here, but um, it, is, it is great to be with you. I'm, um, it's going to be so good when we can gather together and we can be diving into God's Word together in the same building, but this is one step closer. At least I'm in the new building and one day you will be too. So we're going to be in Philippians 1. Grab your Bibles and the words will come up on the screen, but we're going to be kind of in the first 11 verses and I'm going to keep referring back to them. So if you've got your Bible, you're at home, go grab it, have that open and, and we're going to go from there. We're going to go through the whole of the book of Philippians and um, just really briefly, I want to set a little bit of background, a little bit of context as to um, you know, who is this letter written to, when was it written, what was going on, just because actually those things are important for understanding um, like what was written and why. And, and so just a little bit of background, even just historically, and this, this letter was written by Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, and he and um, if you have a look on the screen, this is a, a very brief sort of edited highlights, if you like, the timeline of Paul's life. So he was converted in AD 34, so about 34 years after Jesus. Um, he was radically converted with this kind of on the way to Damascus. Um, AD 46 to 47-ish, um, he went on his first missionary journey, um, sharing the gospel, planting churches. His second journey, a couple of years later, somewhere around, and these are approximate dates, we don't know 100%, about AD 48, 51, and it was on this journey. So his second missionary journey is where um, he went to Philippi um, and planted the church that he is now writing to in this letter to the Philippians. And it will be, you know, take some time this week, have a read in Acts chapter 16. You can read sort of the, the history, the story of um, Paul in Philippi, what happened, how that church was established. And, and again, that's a really helpful framer for understanding now the letter that he's writing back to these people. So that was his second journey. He went on a third journey um, a few years later between AD 52 and 57. And which it is worth acknowledging, isn't it, that um, these weren't sort of short missionary trips. This is years of him traveling around um, the ancient world, preaching the gospel, encouraging churches, years and years and years of traveling on these missionary journeys. And on this third journey, um, we read in Acts chapter 20, he goes back to Philippi. We don't actually get any details of how long he was there, what he did, who he was with, but we do know he did go back again at that point. Um, and then we come to AD 62. Um, now this is where Paul is actually, he is, um, he's in prison. He's under house arrest, fairly certainly in Rome. And it's at this point from that position that he writes not only Philippians, but actually Colossians, Ephesians and Philemon as well. Um, and that is only a couple of years before um, he died. Somewhere around AD 64, 67, Paul was ultimately martyred and killed for his faith. So, so Philippians was written towards the tail end of Paul's life, right? Me, you know, potentially only two, three years um, before he was killed. It was, but it was decades after he was converted. So, you know, best part of 30 years after his radical conversion. Um, so 30 years of following Jesus and of, of ministry and mission and church planting and building. Um, and he was writing back to the Philippians, maybe 14 years or so after he was there. And um, when you read it in Acts chapter 16, so 14 years later, he is writing to this group of people in Philippi. Now, Philippi was in northern Greece, it was known as Macedonia at the time, and it was actually the first place in modern-day Europe um, where people heard the gospel. And, and again, if you, if you read back in Acts, that gives you the historical context that um, 
Paul was actually kind of called to go to Macedonia in a dream. Um, it says that there was a dream and he saw a, like a dream or a vision and he saw a man saying, hey, come to Macedonia. And so he, you know, it was very definitely a God-appointed trip that he went. So in the northern part of Greece, he went to this city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony, okay? So it was um, people who lived there were Roman citizens. There, were, there was a Jewish community there, but scholars tend to think probably not, they weren't the majority by any stretch. You know, the Jews would have been a minority in that city and so much so that there wasn't seemingly even a synagogue there because when Paul went to Philippi, he went to the river for the place of prayer rather than to the synagogue. So, um, and that affects what the letter looks and sounds like. So, you know, he's not writing to a primarily Jewish audience here. And again, the people he's writing to is important because it helps us understand why he says what he says and how he says it. Um, so it was a Roman colony, a pretty significant city. It was on um, this what's called the Ignatian Way, which was pretty much the major east-west um, highway in the Roman Empire at that time. And um, so pr primarily writing to Roman citizens, but you know there were some Jewish people there. So why does that matter? You know, other than, you know, I find it interesting historically, you might, you might not, but why, why does that matter? Um, I think it matters because of in basically how we approach um, reading specifically the New Testament letters or the epistles, right? How we read those. We need to be really, really aware. I know it sounds blindingly obvious, but they are letters. They're letters from a specific person, in this case, Paul, to a specific group of people in a particular location, in a certain context, at a very definite time. It's a letter. Okay, so we read that. Let's dive into the text. The first couple of verses, Philippians 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's and it, it's a letter. So we're saying, this is who it's from, this is who it's to, and he greets them, he blesses them. Um, so we need to be clear, listen, the epistles aren't written as, you know, how to be a Christian guides. You know, they're not essentially, they weren't written for that. They were written as letters. And what we, what we read, what we hear is, I guess, one side of a conversation, one side of a dialogue. We're hearing from someone who was in relationship with another group of people. And we just get to hear one side of that conversation. And I think that's particularly why understanding a little bit about the context specifically, historically, culturally, politically, what was going on in Philippi um, helps us understand, I guess, the other side of the conversation, which we don't hear because we just have this letter. So understanding well, who was Paul writing to, what was going on with them, that actually it sheds some light. It kind of helps to kind of, I think, bring some weight and some clarity to, to what Paul says and why. And we'll pick that up in various ways as we go through um, the rest of the letter. Uh, but let's carry on in the text. And like often in, in Paul's letters, he, um, he, he greets them and he says who, you know, who he's writing to and he, and he greets them, he blesses them and he, and he talks about praying for them. He does that quite often in his letters and it's just the same here. So I'm gonna read from verses three to eight now. It says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you, all of you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Right, and I mean, this really kind of 
it makes it very plain to me, I think, that actually Paul is in relationship with these people. This isn't an abstract, disconnected sort of theological lesson that he's writing to them. He is writing to people he loves and he cares about and he is connected to, he is committed to. Like, it's people he's in relationship with. He's writing to them, blessing them. You know, deep, genuine, abiding. This is, remember, years after he first visited. He didn't get very much time with them, but over a decade later, he still has this deep commitment, this persistent, prayerful commitment to a group of people. You know, deep love, genuine concern and, and consistent commitment to them. Um, and listen, that's what making disciples looks like. That's what building the church looks like. And I don't think any of us are excused from actually that being part of our experience, that being part of how we are disciples of Jesus, who are looking to make disciples of Jesus, actually. You know, Paul didn't get that much time with the Philippians. He didn't get to see them very often. And even that is like, yeah, that's kind of where we find ourselves. We're not getting to see one another, to be with one another, but that's not a get out. Actually, I think we should have deep, genuine, abiding, persistent, prayerful love, concern, and commitment for the people that God's put us in relationship with, just like Paul had um, for the Philippians. So my first question to us is, who are those people? Who are those people that God has sovereignly and supernaturally sometimes connected us to, like he did with Paul, you know, in, in a dream saying, go to these people in Northern Greece, in Macedonia, go to this city of Philippi. And years later, he still loves them, prays for them, is thinking of them, even though he didn't get a whole lot of time with them physically. That's that is, I think, a, a good challenge for us to have. So who are those people um, that actually God's connected you to, that you need to have that deep, consistent, prayerful, consistent, prayerful commitment to? You know, and maybe are there, you know, are there some of those relationships? Is there some of that actually needs, we need to pay a bit of attention to and say, do you know what? Actually, I need to go again with praying for and committing to and encouraging and reaching out to those people. For Paul, back then, his only means was a letter. That was, that was all he could have done. We've got some other options, right? We can phone, we can text, we can email, we can go for a walk. Like we have got some options. So I want to just encourage us, challenge us. Who are those people that you're committed, that you're connected to, that you need to be committed to and praying for? Um, so that's, my, that's the first thing we realize. You know, Paul loves these people. He's so deeply connected and committed to them. Um, and then he goes on to say um, that he's praying for them. And he tells us, again, he sort of, he cracks open his life and he, he says, hey, it's not just that I'm praying for you and I'm praying with joy and I'm praying for a point of deep affection because I carry you guys in my heart. He then goes on to say, and this is what I'm praying. He kind of tells us, he brings us into his kind of prayer journey um, and says, this is what I'm praying for you. So this is from verse nine. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is one of the examples of what gets known as the apostolic prayer. So when you know, the writers of the New Testament specifically tell us, this is what I am praying for you. And listen, if we're ever kind of not sure, you know, we kind of lose our way a bit and you know, what should I be praying and what words should I use? Come back and pray what, you know, what the apostles were praying for the early church. This is, this is a really good prayer to be praying for ourselves and to be praying for one another. To, you know, we can be praying these things for the people that God has connected us to and that we want to be committed to. Um, 
And he says, if you, know, if you jump back in verse four, he actually, his prayer is always marked with joy. And I love that. He says, when it, I always pray with joy. And now joy is a theme that we're going to see right the way through this letter in Philippians. Um, he actually uses kind of joy, rejoice, um, rejoicing, take joy, those kind of words and languages. Like over 12 times, I think it is in this letter. And it's a very consistent theme um, through Philippians, which is if you think about where Paul's writing it from, under house arrest, in prison, potentially unsure of what his future looks like, you know, increasingly aware of that could look like he's put to death. Um, joy is a very unlikely theme from an imprisoned man. Actually praying with joy from prison for a people that he hasn't seen for years, he may well not ever see again. That's, almost, that's humanly unlikely, um, but in the kingdom it's there and, and I love that. So he says that he prays with joy um, and he essentially says three things, I think. He says, these are the things that I'm praying for you. Um, so let's have a look at those things. The first thing is this in verse nine, he says he praying, he's praying for love. He's praying, he says, that your love may abound or overflow, or the translations say, more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. So I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, a message translation of this verse is beautiful. It says this. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish. And then listen to this. And that you will not only love much, but you will love well. Like if there's a good prayer to start off 2021, it's that. Jesus, I, I don't, I want to love much, but I actually want to love well. Um, that is a really good prayer. Jesus, help me to love well. And what does that look like? Um, I think that's beautiful. I love that. Um, if we just prayed that and lived that for this year, I think we'd see amazing things. But it's interesting to me that um, when what he's praying is that, that the, the Philippians, the Christians in Philippians would, uh, from Philippi, their love would abound, would overflow in knowledge and depth of insight. Now that, that's, a, that's interesting to me because when we think about love, if probably, you know, we think about, I guess, emotion and affection. And, and absolutely that is part of love. Um, but, but the overflow Paul is talking about actually is knowledge and insight. You know, so we tend to think, you know, love is about heart. Whereas here, you know, what Paul's seeming, you know, as he's praying, he's kind of pulling us into is actually love is, is, can be, is about head as well. You know, we so often separate, don't we? Head stuff, heart stuff. Uh, God just doesn't do that. Um, so while we might think love is emotion and affection, actually here Paul's saying, no, it's about knowledge and insight. Other translations use words like wisdom, discernment, understanding. The more that we love God, the more that we are loved by God, actually that we would also, that would have an overflow and that would look like that we have greater understanding, that we have more wisdom, that we have insight. Um, so yes, you know, knowing God and, and loving God, of course it's relational, um, but it also includes our understanding, our mind and our thinking as well. So that's the first thing he's praying that this love would overflow. The second thing, verse 10, um, is actually about discernment. And I think it's, it's about moral discernment. He's saying that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Because gosh, you know, we, we need to be praying that for ourselves and one another, you know, in this day, in this cultural moment we're in as much as anything else, that actually God help us to know what is best. And what is best is God's way. It's his will. It's his standard for every area of our life and relationship and finances. And in every way, actually, Paul is praying that you would know what is best. 
for every part of our lives, for every part of society and culture. God knows and has prepared what is best for us. Um, and, and everything that he says, everything that he gives in his, in his instructions towards us, and if, everything that he gives even in, in limitations towards us, actually is always because what he wants for us and what he has prepared for us is the very, very best. And so Paul's prayer here is that actually the, the Philippians would know what that is and that they would therefore be pure and blameless. And again, you know, there's, there's so many voices. There are so many opinions um, coming from so many different places. You know, that is a really powerful and important prayer for us to be praying for one another. God, that we would know what is best, that we would hear your voice, that we would know your will and we'd walk in your way. That's a really important prayer. And the third thing is this. He prays in verse 11, that, so it goes on from saying that we, they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So essentially he's taking this on, he's, he's saying from praying initially that they would be filled with love and, and understanding and insight, that they would be able to discern what is best and that that would have an effect. The, the result of that is having discerned what is best, we would also live it right? Not just, I know what God's will and his way is, that actually I would live that. Um, and there would be fruit from righteousness. Right? Now, now, righteousness is a, it's a, very, it's a very Bible word, right? And it, but it's essentially, it's, you know, there's the righteousness that we've been given as a gift, right? Righteousness is our, our new relationship, our right relationship and standing with God, not based on anything we have or haven't done, but based purely on the work of Jesus. And that actually, as we believe, we are, we are made righteous, okay? But, it, it does, but there's, this, there's fruit of righteousness, right? It, it's a gift that is given to us, but it has an effect. It has an out in how we, how we live, right? So there's righteousness that we receive as a gift by faith, but there is righteous living that we need to commit to. And that is what Paul's praying for here. Actually, we would discern what's God's best and it would, it would look like something in our lives. There would be fruit from this new relationship and new position with God. So three things. Paul was praying for his, you know, his, his friends, those are people he loved in Philippi. Three things we can be praying for ourselves and for each other, for love, for discernment and for the fruit of righteousness. Um, and he's praying those things, remember, with joy um, and from a place of real, real commitment, real um, affection for this group of believers in Philippi. The final thing I want to say about this is, is almost the, the, there's two frames, if you like, um, of Paul's prayer. So he's praying with joy. He's praying from a place of deep love and commitment to these people. He's praying these three specific things. Um, but it, it's framed, I think, in two things. Firstly, is what he says in verse six. Um, and what he says this, let's, let's go back to that. Verse six, he says this. Um, I always pray with joy. This is verse four. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This, this underpins, um, it underpins Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And I think it needs to underpin our prayer for one another. Actually, our confidence is purely and simply and always in the fact that God will finish what he started. He's got this. He's got you. He's got me. Um, and, and we can be confident in that. You know, I think that is, 
Honestly, I think that needs to be the foundation for our spiritual growth. Actually, that it is rooted in what God, ha- what God has done, what he is doing, but what he will do in the future and confident in him through that whole process. Our confidence is in him, N- not, in, not necessarily in our own ability or other people's, but in him, confident that he's begun a good work and he will see it through to completion. God is a good finisher. He will complete things in the right way, in the right time. And Paul's, you know, again, remember where Paul is writing this from, you know, his current situation, his extreme restriction, his struggling, um, in, as well as his distance and his, his separation from his friends in Philippi, actually doesn't alter his confidence. His prayers are still from a confidence that God will finish what he started. You know, we need, we need to have the right view of God. He's, he's a, he doesn't just start things and then leave it to us. You know, I know if I, I am married to someone. Phil is a wonderful man and good at very many things. He's an amazing starter. He's honestly pretty dreadful at completing things. If finishing things, he's just not great. He will start things and leave them undone, or he'll start things at a time when he can't possibly finish them. The, my the worst example of this, or best, depending on how you look at it, is a few years ago now, we were um, we just had new carpet fitted. We're doing a little bit of work in our house and we've got a, a fireplace. We have a chimney breast and um, with a fireplace in the lounge and we had the we had some carpet relayed and Phil had always kind of wondered about, you know, getting a wood burning stove and which we, we all of that stuff is done now and we have it and it's lovely. But this particular um, situation I'm thinking of, we were um, we were actually going out for dinner. Um, the babysitter had already arrived, um, and, and this is generally three days after we had brand new carpet paid for and fitted. Phil decided just to literally tw- 15 minutes before we were supposed to be going out for dinner, just have a look and see um, what was going on in the chimney. So he kind of just was messing around with it, and I think he had a hammer or something, and he just knocked this bit of sort of this funny lump of concrete was in the back of the fireplace, which and it just dropped down, and as it did, no exaggeration, a cloud of soot poured down the chimney, out into the lounge and covered probably a third of our brand new carpet we had literally just paid for. Starting a job he, with no possible way of finishing it well. Like he's a good starter, he's a terrible finisher, but here's a good thing. God is not like that. He is, he is I mean, Hebrews tells us, right? He's the author and the perfecter. He doesn't just start something and then take his hands off and leave it to us. He's the author and perfecter of our faith or the founder, the initiator who made the first move, who spoke the first word, but he is also just the best finisher and completer. And Paul has this rock solid, unshakable confidence. God is gonna finish the good work that he started in you. That's what he's saying to them in Philippians. That's what some of us need to hear. God's still got you. He's not abandoned you. He's going to finish the good work that he started in you. And the second thing that I think frames his prayers is that what we see at the very end, he goes through, this is what I'm praying for you. And he finished it saying that you'd be filled with righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Listen, it's so important that we get that that the end goal of Paul's prayer is, yes, that the Philippians would be pure and blameless. And yes, you know, we know and we talk about a lot, don't we, that, you know, Paul's heart really was for maturity amongst those people he was discipling, maturity amongst the churches he was planting, that they would measure up to all the fullness of Jesus. Absolutely, yes, that was the goal. But, But the 
purpose of that is always and must always be to the glory and praise of God. Friends, it's not about you and I, it's about him and living for his praise and glory. And that the whole of our journey, the whole of that process, the whole of the good work that he's doing in us, that he's gonna finish in us is ultimately unto his glory. It's not about us, it's about him. And it, do you want to see, it's a really helpful reminder for us to have because we, we rightly understand that, you know, we are, we're loved, we are significant, we're, we're valuable to God, and we are. But we, but we need to understand that our lives don't belong to us. My life is not my own and nor is yours. Actually, the whole journey um, of us being built up to be like Jesus, kind of, you know, living lives for him is is for his praise and his glory. You know, and, and Paul has a really good awareness of this. Even how he introduces himself in verse one, how he talks about himself and Timothy. He says, from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now the word he used for servants, um, it actually could be translated slaves or bonded slaves. Um, you know, and that, that isn't about Paul having a sort of a negative, you know, poor self-esteem or poor self-image or a poverty mindset. No, it, listen, we're sons and servants and, and a healthy biblical identity. Actually, it, we have to have space for both. John Wimber, um, who had started the Vineyard Church, he said this, he said, I am just change in God's pocket. He can spend me however he wants. You know, and I've, I've had conversation with some people who are like, oh, you know, he doesn't, you know, that's, a, that's an orphan mindset. That's a poverty spirit. I don't think it is. Listen, I think this is, the, here's the truth. I absolutely am just change in his pocket. He can spend me however he wants, but I'm changed that he values deeply, incredibly. But nonetheless, he can spend me however he wants. My life is valuable to God. My life has influence on earth, and yet it is not my own. So what, and what Paul is saying here is, listen, all this stuff that I'm praying for you, all this deep affection that I have for you, all this persistent prayer and commitment to you as a people is ultimately unto one thing, and it's to the praise and glory of God. And we need to have that framing, everything that we're, we're going after and believing for and praying for, for ourselves and for one another this year. So this is where Paul starts this letter, actually, with a, from a place of absolute, unshakable confidence that God will finish the good work that he's doing in us. He's doing it from a place of real commitment um, to this group of people who are in the process. And we, and we need to be like that as well. And he's doing it consistently prayerful, consistently prayerful, even with disconnection, even when he's not able to see them that much, he's consistently prayerful. And in all of it, his goal is that it would bring glory and honor to God. Um, so why don't we just take a moment as we've closed, I would love to pray for myself and for you. Let's pray together. Um, God, we wanna thank you um, for the good work that you have started in each one of us. And Father, I ask that you would renew our confidence, not in ourselves, not in each other, but our confidence in you, um, that you are the author and the finisher. You are the initiator and the perfecter of our faith. And so God, we say we trust you in that process and we are confident. And God, I just speak that over people who are, who are, who are flagging, who are feeling unsure, who are feeling disappointed. God, I just speak confidence that you are the God who promises that you will finish the good work that you've started in them. And Father, I pray that as we start a new year and, and so as a church community in Manchester, we start a new season and with a new building. Father, I pray that the whole of our lives 
um, would be done in confidence in the work that you're doing in us, in prayerful and consistent connection and commitment to one another. But ultimately, God, would you just refine and purify our hearts that our goal would be for one thing, that our whole lives, that everything we do individually and corporately, this church communities in Manchester and in Leicester, that our whole lives, God, would be to bring praise and glory to you because you are so worthy. Our lives are not our own and we gladly trust them into your good, kind, patient hands for this year. So Father, would you bless each one of us? Would you encourage and comfort and empower each one of us to walk in your ways? And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.